You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So if you guys don't know a bit about my backstory, before Rachel and I, my wife, we moved back down to Mascouda to plant Mercy's Door. We, we moved down in 2016, and we planted in 2017, so we're actually just a few weeks away, uh, February 17th, and coming up on our five-year anniversary as a church. But before we planted, we were up in uh, Chicago, the kind of western suburbs, and to be honest, uh, I'm a small-town guy uh, by nature, and so I was a bit of a fish out of water. Uh, Rachel is from this area. She was uh, born um, and lived over in Millstadt for a while, and then she became a Freebird midget. Um, and so not a lot of people say that with pride. It's hard to say. I'm not making fun of anyone. In case you don't know, that is the mascot for Freeburg High School. That's legitimate. Please don't send me uh, a hate email later, okay? Um, anyway, so we moved up there. We were, we were small-town people in, uh, or at least close to the big city, and what always cracked me up is there's, there's always kind of these really, uh, oh, derogatory, kind of tongue-in-cheek, snide remarks that city people make about us country folk, right? Um, and one of my favorite, one of my favorite is you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't fill him in the blank. Can't take the country out of the boy. Right? You can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. Um, here, here's why I love this saying, because as sarcastic as it is, it's true. Because the foundation of what that statement is saying is you can change someone's circumstances, but just changing someone's circumstances doesn't change who they actually are, right? And, and, and it's a profound statement, even if it's flippant, because so many of us live our lives believing we can overcome that statement. Most of us, when we desire great change in our life, we try and change our circumstances, right? You don't want to feel like a country boy anymore, so what are you going to do? You're going to move out of the country. You're going to change your circumstances. You don't want to feel underappreciated anymore, so you're going to get a new job. Right? You want to feel better loved or cared for, so you're going to get a new relationship. Most of our lives, inside and outside of the church, unfortunately, believes that the way that we change is by changing our externals, our circumstances, maybe even our actions and behaviors. The only problem with that is it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. I think of most people who are disillusioned with their own Christian walk are disillusioned with their Christian walk because they came to Christ believing that if they changed their circumstances, right, if they stopped watching rated R movies, if they stopped listening to rock and roll, I don't know that this is true anymore, like this was what every pastor said in the 1990s. Right now, I don't know what you would stop listening to. Maybe like K-pop or something like that. If you stop listening to BTS and you stopped watching YouTube clips, that somehow by changing those circumstances, by starting to do this or stopping doing this, that your heart would change, that your life would change, the core of you would change. But without being a mind reader, I can tell you something. I guarantee you it didn't. Changing your circumstances did not change the core of who you are. My guess is you still struggle with the same sins. You still struggled with lust or lack of patience or fear or doubt or insecurity or pride or anger. But see, the good news of the gospel is that the gospel of Christ Jesus doesn't change our circumstances and hope that the change in circumstances changes us. The gospel changes us. 
it gives us a new identity. And then from that new identity flows out change into the circumstances of our life. Right? Just think of it from a really practical perspective. If there was a single day in your life where you came to faith, where the Lord gave you a new heart, where He saved you, did you wake up the next morning in a different room? Right? Like, were you suddenly able to walk on water? Did you, did you not get a head cold the next year? Because I did a lot. Right? Functionally, our circumstances didn't change. But you know what did change? Our name. That we were now named after God Almighty. We were Christ followers. Our position, our identity, our affections changed. There was where we were once pointed away from the Lord with a new heart. We are now pointed towards the Lord. Centering on this fact is what it means for us to be a gospel-centered church. People get frustrated sometimes with me when they, they come and they, and they counsel with me and, and, and they think they know what they need to change. You know, my, my favorite example is someone will come and they'll confess, rightly so, that they struggle with anger. And so we'll talk about it a little bit and, and I, I'll, I'll probably not spend a lot of time on anger. I'll spend a lot of time trying to dig underneath the surface and figure out what's going on underneath because here's what typically happens when people find out as Christ followers that they're angry and ought not be angry. You know what their highest and best solution is? To not be angry. Right? Like that's, the, that's all we've got to throw at it. You know, like, man, I'm a really angry person. What are you going to do about it? going to not be an angry person. Yeah, how's that worked? So we're good? Man, I have no patience. What are you going to do about it? Be more patient. No. Like, I have five kids. I can testify. Right? Like, that does not work. The Lord rules and reigns and changes our lives by changing our very nature. And so when the outflow of that doesn't work, right, a great little R&B song from the early 2000s, you got to start back at one. Step one, it's like a dream come true. Step two, I just want to be with you. No? Okay, fine. Look it up. Brian McKnight, genius of his era and time. If you watch Total Request Live, you'd know what I was talking about. If you don't know what Total Request Live is, we'll pray for you. That's how the gospel works. We go back to the foundation again and again and again. It's why I preach the same sermon every Sunday that ends with, here's the gospel. Because that's the solution to all of our issues in life, is to be changed from the inside out. And that's why we're spending three weeks in the book of Philemon. Because the book of Philemon is a book that discusses how the gospel changes our identity, and from that change in identity, how our relationships, our circumstances, the outworkings of our life are finally changed. So let me read, I'm going to read the entire book, okay, 25 verses. Let me read this over us, and then we will dive in and ask the Lord to speak. The letter of Paul to Philemon, it says this, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. 
I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. See, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. For I am sending him back to you and sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant or slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all, or if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord, so refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord for us. And so we say praise be to Christ. The book of Philemon, which is actually the letter written by Paul to Philemon, was written while he was under house arrest in Rome. This letter was likely delivered along with his letter to the church in Colossae, or the book of the Bible that we call Colossians. Right? The letter is written by Paul to a man named Philemon, and the letter concerns another man named Onesimus. Now, we don't know a ton explicitly about the background of Philemon and Onesimus, but we get a lot of clues from the book from the letter. Likely Philemon was a wealthy Roman citizen. It's likely that he came to faith through Paul. Paul says this when he says, uh, you owe me your own self in verse 19. Paul didn't plant the church in Colossae where Philemon is, and so it's likely that Philemon maybe came to faith in Ephesus where Paul did plant that church. And then when the, the church in Colossae was, was planted and started as its own church, it appears that Philemon became an important leader or member of that church. We, we see here from the greeting that one of the, the gathering places for the church in Colossae was in Philemon's home. So Philemon was an important man and a follower of Christ that had an intimate and personal relationship with Paul. Now, we also know that Philemon, as a wealthy Roman, like a lot of other Roman citizens did, owned slaves or bondservants. Now, let me just kind of hit this head on in the beginning. Slavery in that time is likely not what comes to mind when you and I think of slavery. For most of us in Western culture that lives in this day, we have a view of slavery from kind of the antebellum southern era of the 17 and 1800s, what we call chattel slavery. Slavery where men were literally abducted from their own place, their own land, their own homes, and were treated as subhuman and less than less than anything. They were treated as property. Now, there was certainly some of that that existed in ancient times, but typically when you read through Scripture and you either see slavery or bondservant, they're talking about an institution that looked different. There was actually a number of reasons and ways that one could become a slave or bondservant. 
If, for instance, you could not support your own family, you might willingly, out of your own choice, become a slave or bondservant because in that position, you and your family would be cared for. You would be provided for. There would be a place that you could live. There would be the ability for food to be on your table. Other times, people became bondservants or slaves out of their own debt. So if you incurred a debt to someone that you could not repay, the way that you would repay that is would be entering into servitude or slavery to them until you could pay that off. Now that's neither here nor there in great circumstance. It actually doesn't matter the nature of the situation and relationship between Philemon, the master, and Onesimus, the former slave, in the midst of this. And the reason I tell you that is because what Paul is going to say about Onesimus, no matter how far down he theoretically was on the cultural rung, Paul is going to say of him, he is exalted beyond all compare. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we walk through this letter. Now at some point in time, one of Philemon's slaves, Onesimus, flees from Philemon. We don't know the exact situation, but it looks like in verse 18 that when he flees Philemon, he wrongs him in some way, shape, or form. It may be that he stole from him and then he fled. It may be as simple as the fact that there was an arrangement between Philemon and Onesimus that Philemon himself relied upon the labor and the work of Onesimus. And by leaving Philemon, he left Philemon with a debt that was no longer being repaid. But whatever it is, Onesimus seems to have left and fled from Philemon on on, on pretty scurrilous terms. Something occurred that wounded, hurt, took from Philemon. Now when Onesimus leaves at some point, in some way, by the providence and the mercy of God, quite honestly, he makes his way to Rome probably just to disappear, but at some point in time in Rome, he runs into Paul. And again, we don't know the backstory, but I imagine that probably being in Philemon's home who came to know the Lord Jesus Christ through the hands of Paul, he had probably heard the name Christ Jesus and had heard of the grace and mercy, the love of this man Paul. So Onesimus, with nothing to his name and on the run, somehow meets Paul, comes to Paul, and in meeting Paul, eventually comes to Christ, comes to faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul apparently sees Onesimus as a child, certainly a child in the faith, but but even more than that. But he also knows that because of the gospel, he cannot leave two brothers in Christ unreconciled. And so Paul tells Onesimus, you have to go back to Philemon. You have to face him. You have to reconcile this. You have to work things out. And so Onesimus travels with the letter to the, the Colossians, as well as this personal letter to Philemon, back to see Philemon. Now, Paul does something interesting in the midst of this letter because his, his approach is not a natural approach to any one of us. Now, remember, Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. He founded the church in Ephesus. He was from his work in Ephesus. The church in Colossae came into being He is a spiritual father to Philemon. He is a leader in the church of Christ Jesus. And yet, Paul, wanting Philemon to reconcile, forgive Onesimus, potentially even free Onesimus from his duty as a bondservant and send him back to Paul, Paul chooses not to command Philemon to do any of that. Instead of telling him what he must do, Paul tells Philemon what he ought to do because of the gospel. 
Right? He does this in the beginning by commending Philemon. He says, I thank my God always because I remember you in my prayer. I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. That word sharing of his faith, sharing is actually, it's not evangelism. It's not the telling of his faith. It's the word koinonia. The Greek word that means that we use oftentimes for fellowship. So when he says that the sharing of your faith, what he's saying is you, you bring other people into your faith. Your faith is not just yours, but it, you see that it belongs to Christ Jesus. It belongs to the entire church. He says, Philemon, remember who you are. You belong to Christ. And then he commends him for the, the way that he has been gracious and merciful, opening his home to the church and serving the saints. And he says, remember that the, the gospel's already at work in and through you. You've seen the way that, that Jesus has already changed your life. He reminds Philemon of the work that the gospel's already done in his life, and then he tells Philemon that the gospel has changed Onesimus. That who he's sending back is no longer who Onesimus was, a slave, a runaway, a rebel, but his new identity is that of in Christ. In fact, what he says is that his new identity in Christ is far more important, utterly surpasses any other identity that he once had. This letter is all about how the gospel changes people. How it changes our identity, how it changes our affections, and how it eventually works its way into our relationships. How gospel forms true community within the church. And it gives us three pictures. Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus. All of them have been radically changed by the gospel. So over the next three weeks, we're going to look at all three of these men and ask the question, God, how has the finished, completed work of Jesus changed forever these three men? And today, we're beginning with Onesimus. So I want to briefly look at three ways that the gospel has changed Onesimus. First, the gospel leads Onesimus to stand in the righteousness of Christ. The gospel leads Onesimus to stand in the righteousness of Christ. Second, the gospel leads Onesimus to trust that the Lord works all things together for good. The gospel leads him to trust that the Lord works all things together for good. And finally, the gospel leads Onesimus to receive unmerited grace and favor. To receive unmerited grace and favor. Let's start with the first one. The gospel leads him to stand in the righteousness of Christ. Planting mercy's door was not something that when the Lord first called Rachel and I to do it that we celebrated. And let me tell you why. It's not because we don't love this place it's not because we don't love the people. It's because Rachel and I are from this place. And when Rachel and I left this place, when I was 21 and Rachel was 19, the year that we got married and we moved down to Texas, we were leaving a wake of brokenness behind both of us. A wake of relationships and sin. A, 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 a wake, honestly, of what lives apart from Christ look like. And so the thought of coming back to this community to plant a church in a place where I would stand up and declare the excellencies of God is hard to fathom because I knew I would be met and the first thing that people would recall about me would not be Jesus but all of the things that I would have loved to bury. 
the letter to Philemon that recognizes very clearly the sin of Onesimus and hinges only upon the grace and mercy that may or may not be showed to him Philemon, it's hand-delivered by Onesimus himself. I need you not to take that as a historical fact, but I need you for a second to put yourself in the shoes of Onesimus. His life has been changed in Rome. He's come to know Christ Jesus. He spent time under the apostle Paul, learning of just how good his God really is. And then Paul says to him, I need you to take this letter and this letter, one to the entire church and one to Philemon, and I need you to go back and you need to confront Philemon about what happened. And so Onesimus travels. Mile after mile, he shows up to Colossae. He finds Philemon's home. He knocks on the door. He probably sees the shocked face of Philemon and then he hands him the letter. And then Philemon does what would have been culturally common. He likely takes the letter, he unfolds it, and he begins to read it out loud. Out loud where he can hear, Philemon, where Onesimus can hear, where his wife can hear, his children can hear, anyone else from the church that may have been in his home can hear. And if then if that wasn't hard enough, the Lord saw fit to memorialize Onesimus' sin in Holy Scripture. Right? Like, I... I <coughs> woo! <laughs> you know, like, I have to run into some people, and it's hard to go face-to-face with them, but at least as of right now, I don't know of any historical documentation that exists of my sin Certainly not historical documentation that only captures my sin. But this is what happens with Onesimus. Paul requires Onesimus to go back and to stand face to face with the one that he sinned against. To stand in the midst of his sin and yet still believe his true identity in Christ Jesus. See, Gospel identity requires us to acknowledge two things. One, the depth and the reality of our sin. And then two, the heights and the breadth and the sufficiency of Christ's grace and the covering of His righteousness. I I remember the the second year that we were uh, a church here, after we had planted, we decided that we were going to send out a mailer. And uh, I, th- th- we did this the first year, and the mailer was kind of like, oh, come and see this new church that was planted, and here's this new sermon series that we're doing. And the second time we did it, I was like, listen, if we're going to spend money to send out a mailer, here's what we're going to do. Rather than exalt the church, let's just preach the gospel on the mailer. So that if nobody comes to the church, at least everyone in this community will have seen with their own eyes the gospel. And so we were trying to think, like, all right, what's the most, like, uh, efficient kind of way? Uh, and uh, we ended up putting a quote by Tim Keller, a pastor that I love, that sums up the gospel. And, and this, is, this is how he sums it up. What if you are more sinful and broken than you would ever care to admit, and yet more loved and accepted in Christ than you could ever dare hope for? What if you are more broken and sinful than you would ever care to admit, and yet more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope for? And so we sent these out, and I knew the the day that they hit, because I got one, and I was at uh, one of my kids' soccer game, and the the church number, which went to my cell phone, um, it rang, and I was like, oh, fantastic. Someone got a mailer. I'm like, this is going to be great. They're going to be like, I loved this. Tell me more about the gospel. Tell me about Jesus. How could this possibly be? I was ready. And so I I said, hello, this is is Pastor Michael. And uh, the person on the other line said, "Uh, yes. How can I ensure I never get one of these mailers again? 
And I was like, um, and I, I just like, I, I tried to have a conversation, tried to, you know, do some gospel jujitsu, and she was having none of it. She just, she's, I don't, don't ever speak to me like that again. Essentially, her message was, how dare you say something like that to me? And here was the issue. She was upset because she didn't believe the second part. She didn't believe that she was actually more loved and accepted than she could ever dare hope for. And therefore, the thought of someone telling her that she was more broken and sinful was incredibly offensive. And listen, this makes sense. None of us can possibly actually come face to face and admit how desperately deceitful, broken, and sinful we are. Right? It's like that fun thing when you're like, man, you're a liar. And people are like, I'm not a liar. I just lie a little bit. No, you're a liar. I'm a liar. Right, Jesus? I'm a murderer. Like, he gets right at the heart of it. And the only way that we're going to be able to say, yes, I am, is if on the back of it, the Lord of the universe says to us, and yet you are loved and accepted because of Christ Jesus. Paul gives Onesimus the opportunity to truly experience the second half of that equation, that he is loved and accepted by coming face to face with the first half of that equation. That as Onesimus stares Philemon in the face, as he is reminded of his sin, only in that moment when he feels the depth of his depravity will he actually experience the height of God's gracious and merciful love. Like, listen, this is just true. I could stand here and I could convince you with all sorts of Scripture of the depths of your sin. Right? I, I could tell you that again and again it says that no, none is righteous. I could just use the words that, that the Lord uses to describe Israel in the midst of their rebellion. How He calls them an adulterous, unfaithful spouse. How he tells us that we are filled to our core with evil, that we are dead inside. But my guess is I don't have to convince you of that. My guess is I don't have to convince you of the depth of your sin and depravity because deep down you know it. You know your selfishness. You know your insecurity. You know how you are prone and oftentimes attracted towards things that are not good for you the way that you desire to deal with other people. What I need to convince you of, and what you probably need to hear, is that in the midst of that, you and Onesimus, your true identity is no longer that sin in Christ, not that evil, not that brokenness, but your true identity now is a beloved child of Christ Jesus the righteousness of Christ is something that we are invited to stand in even while we are face to face with our sin. Because that's what we've been given by Christ Jesus. Do you, do you know that? Like, do you know in your worst moments who you actually are? Do you see in your Worst moments, your true value, you, your true worth and righteousness, the true victory that you have in Christ Jesus. Onesimus, by the gospel, was invited to stand in the righteousness of Christ. And he was also invited to trust that the Lord works all things together for good. While Paul is in the midst of encouraging Onesimus to receive, or I'm sorry, encouraging Philemon to receive back his former slave, he, he slips in this kind of random little statement in verse 15. He says, For this, the, the escape of Onesimus, <coughs> this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while, that you might have him, Onesimus, back 
forever. Now, what Paul is saying is that it may just be that in the Lord's providence, Onesimus needed to flee from you in order to come to faith so that now as you receive him back, you do not receive him back as a temporary slave or bondservant, but you receive him back as an eternal brother in Christ Jesus. But Paul isn't just saying that to Philemon. I think Paul is also saying that to Onesimus. That as Onesimus is hearing this letter being read out loud as he's standing in the midst of his guilt and shame, he hears Paul say, it may just be that in the midst of his sin, the Lord was doing a really good and beautiful thing. That in the midst of his rebellion, the great and true Redeemer was using his failure for good. We talked about this just last week. How we have a real Redeemer that really does heal and redeem our failure and our brokenness. You know, Scripture can be described as, as two things, and they're both true. It is right to describe Scripture as the greatest love story that ever took place. And it's also right to describe Scripture as the most heinous account of evil and sin that you could ever read. There's a reason why the Old Testament is shocking. It's because it lays bare the depth of the brokenness of this world, of our own sin. And yet, if we truly knew our God, when we get to Jesus coming and the love, grace, and mercy that He pours out on the cross for us, even after 40-some-odd books of evil and sin and brokenness and rebellion, when we see Jesus show up, if we knew our God, our response would be, of course. Of course He came. Because that's who He is. Of course, in the midst of sin and rebellion. Like I'm, I'm going to say something that, that maybe feels a little over the top, but here's what I want you to, to hear. The Gospel would tell you that even in the midst of your sin and brokenness, you can expect and should expect from the Lord good. Like, let me say that again. In the midst of your sin and brokenness, in the midst of you being impacted by other people's sin and brokenness, the fullness of the gospel says that you should still expect from the Lord good. If you don't believe me, Look at Paul in Romans 6.1. He's describing the heights of the gospel, and Paul says, What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? You may say, like, Michael, no, 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 that, just, that doesn't prove your point. That proves the opposite. Martin Lloyd-Jones says something that I, has forever shaped my ministry. He says this about that verse. The true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against it. There is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the full gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you are saved by such a grace alone, that it doesn't matter at all what you do, you can go on sinning because it will redound in all the more glory and grace. This, in fact, is a very good test of gospel preaching. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to that misunderstanding, then it's not the fullness of the gospel. Right? The, the fullness of the gospel is so shocking that someone should say in this hearing, did he just tell me that I should keep sinning because the Lord will be good to me? I didn't say keep sinning. But I did say that in the midst of your sinning, the gospel, the covering of Jesus is so complete that the Father of heaven will continue to do good. Christians are meant to be able to say with Joseph to others and to ourselves, what you meant for evil, the Lord meant for good. That's how big our God is, and that's how gracious our God is. 
that Paul can say to Philemon, somehow the sin of Onesimus was a part of God's good plan to give you something far better than a slave or bondservant, but to give you an eternal brother. We are called to see that our Lord actually, truly works all things together for good. And finally, in the gospel, we are called to receive unmerited grace and favor. Paul writes this letter to Philemon, but he doesn't just ask Philemon to forgive Onesimus. He actually asks Philemon to treat Onesimus the way that he would treat him. Verse 17, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. He asks Philemon to lavish Onesimus with grace and mercy. He asks Philemon to celebrate Onesimus the way that Philemon would celebrate if Paul showed up on his his doorstep to pour out and to deeply love him. You see what Paul is doing? Paul is placing himself in a role. He's saying to Philemon, I am one who you owe, but I am giving what you owe to another. It should remind Philemon and it should remind you and I of Christ. Because as much as Philemon owes Paul, his self, Philemon owes Christ Jesus everything. And as much as Paul is giving what he is owed to Onesimus, God Almighty has given to Onesimus a status as a beloved child and a position as a co-heir with Christ Jesus in glory that is far greater. Like this is the gospel. Martin Luther applies this truth to not just Onesimus, to us as well when he says this, as Christ does for us with God the Father, so Paul does with Philemon for Onesimus. We are all God's Onesimi. We are all ones sent back. And Christ says to the Father, Father, do not treat them as they deserve. Treat them as I deserve. Love them as I deserve. Welcome them as you would welcome me. Let me be honest for a second. This this grace, this unmerited favor that Onesimus would potentially receive it might be more difficult than him bearing shame and guilt and showing up. Like, think about this for a second. Onesimus shows up, and and he knows what he's done. He, He knows the harm, the hurt that he has caused to Philemon and potentially his family, the shame that he's brought upon himself. And it's likely, Paul certainly expected that Philemon was going to not just do all the things that Paul suggested, but he says, all all the more, confident of your obedience, confident that you're going to do even more than what I ask of you. It's likely that Onesimus was was welcomed back by Philemon. Maybe even a feast was thrown in celebration of Onesimus just like the one that was thrown for the prodigal son. And Onesimus would have stood there in the midst of the celebration, realizing that he had done nothing to deserve it. Nothing to deserve that response. Nothing to receive to deserve the gifts lavished upon him. In fact, what he had duly earned was derision and punishment perhaps prison, or even, in that day and age, the loss of his life. That's what he deserved, but instead he stood there while the church of Jesus celebrated him. Could you imagine how you'd feel in that moment? Really, how you'd feel. I remember one time in my prayer life saying to the Lord, 
after he had surrounded me with people that had responded to my sin with grace and grace and grace. I remember in a moment of honesty saying to the Lord, I don't want to need your grace. I don't want to. I want to deserve people's approval. I want to deserve people's love and affection and affirmation. I don't want to deserve or I don't want to need your grace. It's not. Like we're bad at receiving gifts. We're bad at receiving grace because everything else in our life screams at us that we get what we deserve. We spend our whole lives trying to earn affection, earn people's approval, earn good things, good gifts. And then we walk into the church and believe that we're going to just be able to go like, no, I'm going to be good here. I'll just be able to receive grace, operate even in the midst of my failure and insecurities and inadequacies. I'll just be able to receive the gospel and it'll be good. And then I'm going to go back to work on Monday and I'm going to have this dynamic with my boss and my coworkers and everywhere else that they can love me if I'm good enough, that they can approve of me if I'm good enough, that I get what I deserve. And Jesus says, don't. Lay that down forever in all situations and circumstances. Instead, receive my grace and mercy, my unmerited favor. You can't earn your way into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of grace. You have to be carried in. And you're not just carried in and then the Lord props you up and pats you on the back and goes, now get after it. Right, like I've used this example before, but if I gave a kindergartner a calculus test and then I graded it and he flunked and I looked at him and I said, that's all right, buddy. Give you a do-over. It's fantastic. You know what he's going to do the next time? I flunk it again. He's going to be there until someone else says, hey, listen, not me because he'll flunk it, but somebody else will say to him, like engineers, I will take that test for you. Right? This is what we're called, and it's actually why Christ came. Do you know that it brings joy to the heart of Christ every time you walk not in your identity but His? When you receive not what you deserve but He deserves? In one of my favorite books, it's out there. Pick up a copy. We've got free copies. Gentle and Lowly, the author quotes a Puritan named Thomas Goodwin. He says this, Christ's own joy, comfort, and happiness, His glory are increased and enlarged by showing grace and mercy, pardoning, relieving, and comforting His members here on earth. He goes on, the glory and even happiness of Christ are enlarged. They're increased still as His members come to have the purchase of His death more and more laid upon them. So as when their sins are pardoned, when their hearts are sanctified, their spirits are comforted, then comes he to see the fruit of his labor, and he is comforted thereby. For he is the more glorified, yes, he is much more pleased and rejoiced in this than he ever will be in what we can produce ourselves. This is grace and mercy, the work that he has purchased on the cross, being applied to our life. This keeps up in his heart his care and love unto us children here below to water and refresh us every moment. Like we, listen, Christians are oftentimes known as arrogant. And, and the problem is they're arrogant for all the wrong things. Like you should walk around like a prince. Because you are. But not because of you, but because of Him. You should walk around as if every day and every moment of your entire life, you are loved beyond belief. Because you are in Him. Every time you enter a room, there's never a reason for your, your, your head to be down, to feel less than. 
And it has nothing to do with what you can do or your abilities, your performance. It has to do that you have been carried from your position as a slave and a rebel to the position of a beloved child of the king of the universe. We are called just like Onesimus. We are called just like Onesimus to see and know that we can stand in the righteousness of Christ, to trust that the Lord works all things together for good, and to receive day after day after day unmerited grace and favor. There's one more little verse that stands out about Onesimus in this letter that's not primarily to him, but certainly involves him. And it's verse 10 and into 11. Paul says, I appeal to you for my, my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in imprisonment. Verse 11 says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. The name Onesimus means useful. And what Paul says is, before, he was not who he was created to be. He was not useful. He was not what the Lord God intended him to be. He was dead in his sin and trespasses. And he could do nothing on his own to be what he was called by the Lord to be. We all know what this feels like. We all know what it feels like to fail to not do the things that we should have done or to do the things that we shouldn't have done. But Paul says that now in Christ Jesus, Onesimus is now useful. He's now exactly who he was always created to be. I don't want you to concentrate on the name useful. What I want you to concentrate on is the logic that Onesimus was created to love God and to love people. But apart from Christ, he was utterly unable to do so, and he did not. But now, in Christ, that's exactly who he is. His nature, his character, his identity, his affections, the Spirit of Christ Jesus that resides within him lives to love God now and love people. We've all been Onesimus. Sinners, runaways, slaves, shamed, guilt heaped upon us. But for all of us now in Christ Jesus, we are now and will always be Onesimus. We, like Him, can now always boldly stand in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Approved, affirmed, never rejected. We, like Onesimus, can trust and watch as our Father in heaven uses all things together for good. And we, like Onesimus, can daily, from the first moment that we wake up, receive the unmerited grace and favor of Christ Jesus because the gospel really does change everything. Pray with me.